Hey y'all, hope you're good. Uh, I am doing great. It is fall, it is sweatshirt weather. I have been making a lot of banana bread, but like a healthy kind, um, you know, healthy-ish. And uh, yeah, I can't complain. One thing that I've been doing a lot of work on lately is trying to manage my anxiety a little bit better because I just felt like my shoulders were up at my earlobes for like too long lately. And I'm like, I got to bring those things down. So I heard about this hack that I works really well for me. So, uh, you know, sometimes hacks like this can be a little woo woo for people, but Hey, if it helps, it helps. So, uh, if you also have anxiety, I don't know, maybe this will work for you. But basically what you do is when you're feeling that way, when your like shoulders are up at your earlobes and you're just like, you know, facing that deadline or the presentation or the meeting or whatever life, um, kids, partners, whatever, uh, try this. So it's super simple. All you do is you take two inhales, but they're like kind of sharp, quick inhales. And you take like two beats to do that. And then you exhale on that third beat. So I'll just show you. It's like this. Okay. You go, so you're like freaking out. You're like, Oh my God, everybody hates me. And then you go, it's kind of to the beat of like hip hip hooray i feel like anyway try it the next time you're kind of like freaking out in your head and uh maybe it'll help you all right let's cover some news then i'll tell you about the episode then we'll get to the episode it'll be a really good time all right in washington state a federal judge upheld an earlier dismissal of five class action lawsuits that alleged that car manufacturers unlawfully collected and recorded drivers recorded drivers text messages uh, this is true. Uh, Verge reports, the Verge reports, that the lawsuit said Honda, Toyota, Volkswagen, General Motors, and Ford intercepted and recorded text messages and call logs when drivers were connected to their vehicles' infotainment systems. Uh, the judge said the Washington Privacy Act requires plaintiffs to allege an injury and that the plaintiff's allegation that violating the Washington Privacy Act itself is an injury to a person, is, quote, insufficient to meet the statutory requirement. Uh, so basically, it's that old harm threshold, and uh, this judge is saying, uh, yeah, they violated the law, but that's uh, not injury. Um, when I said the Washington Privacy Act, if you were like, wait, what? Washington has been trying for years to, tr- to pass its own privacy law and failing. Uh, that's true. This Washington Privacy Act, which I hadn't even heard of before, is uh is held within Washington's uh, constitution. So different Washington Privacy Act than we're all thinking of, but still an act. Anyway, I kind of understand, you know, this whole statutory requirement thing. I love philosophy. And as an English major, I do find it thrilling that a ruling can turn on a single word like injury. But as I said in my newsletter this week, the Privacy Beat newsletter, uh, I rent a car every few months for the 12-hour drive from D.C. to Maine, and I get really bored and lonely, and I call several people, my mom, my mentor, my best friend, my second best friend, who's almost as good as first best friend, you know, but like slightly more flawed or whatever, and I say some stuff, you know what I mean? I don't, I don't want anyone hearing that, uh, even if it is anonymized. Like, that's the stuff that I don't need shared. Um, anyway, uh, you may have also seen the markups report earlier this year uh, talking about the way that cars are failing us from a data privacy standpoint. And, you know, we don't have a privacy law. So. Uh, meanwhile, though, maybe some good news. 
California's privacy agency, the CPPA, recently announced that it's looking into connected cars. It's reviewing the privacy practices of automakers in the state. Um, and its enforcement division is making inquiries on things like location sharing, smartphone integration, and cameras, though it hasn't said specifically which companies it is reviewing. Next, a group of moms is suing the state of New Jersey for storing newborn babies' blood for 23 years. I actually love this case. I think it's so philosophically interesting. But you know how newborn babies get their heels pricked uh, after they, you know, come out of the mom? For, you know, the doctor's got a test for any diseases, dangerous conditions they might not know about just from looking at the uh, the crying child. Uh, I suppose it's something that happened to all of us, although I think some laws, I'm not actually sure when all of these laws came into place that you had to do the heel prick test, but I don't know, Google it. Um, I'm without child. I've never seen it happen, but it's a thing. All 50 states uh, have rules that you have to do newborn screens for at least 29 health conditions and only Maine and California require parental consent. Uh, But this whole case happened because last year, New Jersey's Office of the Public Defender found out that the state police had accessed an infant's blood sample in order to charge his father with a 1996 uh, crime. The kid was 10 years old at the time that police uh, used the DNA to get to the dad. So they got the newborn uh, blood instead of getting the DNA from the father himself, knowing that the father's DNA would be within this child's blood. Um, And that was possible because New Jersey's law mandating blood collection at birth doesn't have rules limiting retention or deletion. So the plaintiffs in this case are saying the state should tell parents about this DNA retention policy and that parents should be allowed to opt in or out of certain uses of their newborn's data. Uh, This one parent in the Wired story on this, this story comes from Wired, by the way, um, this one parent said, if there was something the state told me they could do with my child's blood samples that would benefit the greater good, I would likely opt into that. But I want the chance to opt in, end quote. You know, I think that's like a mic drop moment. Pretty reasonable. Lastly, for you kids who uh, care a lot about Section 702, which actually is an area that I think is also fascinating, um, a group of bipartisan lawmakers uh, on Tuesday this week introduced their blueprint for renewing uh, this controversial surveillance tool, surveillance tools before it expires at the end of the year. Um, Axios is reporting on this, and uh, as Axios reports, it marks the first piece of legislation that lawmakers have introduced um, in this very long battle to reauthorize Section 702, which expires soon. Um, 702, as you know, allows intelligence agencies to conduct warrantless surveillance of non-American citizens outside the U.S. during investigations, but privacy peeps and others have said that Obviously, this program inadvertently collects text, emails, and other communications from U.S. citizens, innocent U.S. citizens who are talking to foreigners abroad. Um, And the information collected through 702 is stored for several years in a searchable database. So uh, these senators, which include Ron Wyden from Oregon, who's a Democrat, and Mike Lee from Utah, who's a Republican, have introduced what's called the Government Surveillance Reform Act. It's a 206-page bill that would reauthorize 702 for four years, um, and it would allow for searches of Section 702 in cases where a person is the subject of a criminal warrant or where there's an imminent threat of death or serious physical harm to others, and when a third party legally consents on behalf of the person the query is about. 
Um, the bill also requires intelligence agencies to get prior approval from the attorney general before conducting a search for communications about or from a U.S. citizen, as the report states. Um, lawmakers are now also pushing through, um, they're pushing the intelligence community to develop a system to destroy certain data obtained through FISA Section 02 within five years of collection. So find all of that in the Axios story if you want more. On to today's show. Today we're talking about what else? AI. AI. I know, I know. We're a little saturated, but at this point on this show, it's just negligent not to do something about it if I'm aiming to reflect, as I always am, what's happening in the privacy space. This is our our yearbook, you know? Uh, I have to touch on this. But the good news is that I've got three really intelligent, thoughtful, badass women on the show to tell us about it in terms that won't make you fall asleep. Unless you use this podcast to fall asleep, which, to be honest, would be hurtful. But hey, I want to be useful to you, so whatever you got to do. Please enjoy Epic's Kali Schroeder, Chloe Audio, an AI policy and governance advisor, and Suchi Pahi of Databricks to tell you what you need to know about protecting your organization from AI's pitfalls, the potential for a federal bill on AI, and what to take away from Biden's recent executive order. Hope you enjoy. Talk soon. Love you. So Suchi, I'm super glad to have you here because I haven't seen you in a while. And um, we used to see each other way before COVID. We would sometimes do happy hours together at a little wine bar in Chinatown near where you work. Um, have you been? What are you up to? Tell us a little bit about uh, yourself for those who don't yeah, know you um, Hi, folks. I'm Suchi. I am a data privacy, cybersecurity, and AI lawyer. Um at this point, I think we should all just call ourselves emerging tech lawyers, but but we'll see how that goes. I've been uh, working at Databricks for the last two years, and uh, the space that I've been working in is AI. So that's that's what I've been up to. Other than that, I've recently adopted a very cute dog who would probably get along with your dog, which is why hopefully we can get together soon. <laughs> oh, my goodness. What kind of dog is a, a Ruben? Canuka? That's what they told me. But I think that the real answer is a stray dog from the islands that made it to Virginia. So ah, <laughs> yeah. amazing. Not so dissimilar from my Puerto Rican street dog that I now raise. As there a you go. Mother. <laughs> amazing. Okay, Chloe, would you tell us? Uh, Chloe and I go way back my days from my days at the IEPP. Um, and the last time I think I saw you was at a Solof conference. We got to say hi. Um, tell us a little bit about yourself, though, for f- those who don't know you. Hey, Angelique, yeah, it's been a while. Gosh. So um, I am an independent consultant who advises all kinds of organizations, mostly uh, technology companies, on what is happening with the AI policy landscape, helping them um, develop policy positions. Uh, but a lot of it lately, as you can all imagine, is mostly under helping them really understand um, and make sense of everything that's going on in the landscape surrounding AI policy and governance. So um, this experience was informed by working at Intel for about four years uh, back in the day when conversations about big data and responsible AI were just sort of coming to the surface. Um, and I helped sort of set up the responsible AI program there, uh, as well as work on all sorts of AI policy issues since uh, before it was cool. And so <laughs> the last six months have been validating, crazy, busy, um, but really exciting. And so I'm excited to jump into all of this with you all today. 
Awesome. And Callie. So Callie, I met in New Hampshire when uh, she and I were both living there. Callie was just a young whippersnapper, uh, a Weston fellow at the IPP under Omer Tene. And um, we spent some time. We were in Brussels together for an IVP conference. I think we were there together actually when Trump got elected, which was a special, mm-hmm. special experience um, <laughs> for obvious reasons. But Callie, so that folks can associate uh, your voice with your with your name when you do talk, uh, tell us a little about yourself, if you would. Yeah, so uh, I'm Callie Schrader. I work for the Electronic Privacy Information Center, which is a privacy and civil rights group uh, in D.C. We go by EPIC. And I'm senior counsel and global privacy counsel there. So I'm kind of covering all of the policy developments and regulatory developments happening outside the U.S. And lately it has been, as you imagine, just a ton of AI. I just got off a call uh, where that I'm for a paper on large language models that I'm helping to draft with some uh, DPAs. And then, yeah, outside of that, Leek and I go way back to... Uh, being sleepless in Brussels after staying up all night watching the election. <laughs> and I have also met Suchi's beautiful dog. So. Ah, jealous. So let's just like level set a little bit. I, we had kind of talked about doing this talk a while ago and I was really in my infancy. I mean, I still am. Um, but I was really in my infancy learning about AI. It felt a little scary to me. I don't like things that I can't see. I don't, I have trouble learning to understand them when they're invisible. Um, and so it's felt a little bit overwhelming for me. Since then, you know, there's been so much on AI that I'm feeling a little bit more comfortable. But I do think for folks, you know, we try and be inclusive on this podcast. So for folks who maybe are just starting to get their feet wet on this, um, Chloe, maybe because you help folks kind of define this for themselves at their organizations, et cetera. Could you tell us a little bit about uh, if you had to sort of define what AI is in terms of the context that we're dealing with now? Um, how would you broadly define it? Oh, gosh. So I may take this in a different direction, Angelique, and then um, hear what others have to say. But I always like to say that AI is a term that conceals more than it reveals, right? Because uh, it is used so interchangeably, so widely now to talk about a huge range of different things. And I think what the most important thing to keep in mind is when we're talking about AI is thinking about uh, distinguishing between you know, processing and compute, uh, different AI capabilities, uh, models, and then applications. And so thinking about what you're really using, what we're calling AI for is really, really important. But to give sort of a, you know, high level, I don't want to call it like a layman's definition um, for AI, I think I would describe it as some sort of, you know, uh, technology system or highly capable system that uses a lot of data um, to think or act in ways that appear human. And that may sound not super technical, but that's because I think the devil is in the details when we're actually defining AI and talking about it in context is really, really important. Can we talk a little bit, you know, as we see in our space right now, Twitter, LinkedIn, every conference you go to, it's AI, AI, AI. Um, can we talk a little bit about what some of those problems are um, as far as the privacy profession is being is concerned? Um, Chloe, could you kick us off? Yeah, sure. So I think it's fair to say that, um, you know, privacy is a core concern with 
the adoption and implementation of AI because of how inherent the use of data is for AI to function. I think that Suchi articulated this really, really well. Um, but all of the concerns that um, you know privacy raises are salient in an AI context: um, surveillance, you know, data access, consent. Uh, and then we're getting into other issues, obviously, that AI has raised, like bias and discrimination, right? Um, will a model perform uh, with the same level of accuracy uh, for one community versus another? These are really, really important things and have really been part of, you know, sort of general responsible AI and AI governance conversations for a really long time, in addition to things like human rights and questions about um, how much autonomy we want to give machines, uh, concepts like transparency, you know, what we need to expect from machines in terms of explanation and the types of decisions that they're making about us or that affect us. Um, but I think that I also want to make the observation that, you know, while these concerns about privacy and bias and security and human rights have sort of been part of the, the AI governance discussion for a while. In the last, uh, you know, six to 12 months or so, and particularly with um, the rapid consumer adoption of generative AI, we've started to see a lot more concerns about what some folks are calling existential risk or catastrophic risk, um, that these models, especially, you know, very large language models, pick your, pick your definition or pick your phrase, however you want to define them, um, can pose. And I think we really need to get more specific about what those risks mean, because um, currently in a lot of policy discussions, uh, concerns about existential risk, about future risk, about, you know, things like um, these models being able to create a bioweapon or, you know, hijack nuclear codes have really dominated the conversation. And I think it's really important that we don't forget about all of the risks and harms that are well documented and happening today that we know how to govern and, and need to focus on too. Yeah, to add on to that, for a bunch of the a the companies that are developing AIs and selling them, uh, they focus so much on the catastrophic risk that it seems like a way to avoid conversation about the harms that are currently happening. You know, there's so much shift to focus on future problems that it seems like a way to avoid talking about current problems. And there are a lot of current problems with existing AI. So as Chloe mentioned, there's a bunch of the the standard issues that you run into when uh, a system is just scraping as much data as possible. And a lot of these data training sets are set up to just scrape as much data as possible. And there's not a lot, not well, as far as we know, there's not a ton of transparency, so it's hard to tell. Recently, as we mentioned, Biden issued an executive order. Now, I have been around for a few executive orders in my time, I suppose. Uh, specifically, you know, we recently saw the executive order on the data privacy framework. I, I don't have like a, a great understanding of how impactful or not impactful an executive order is. Seems like it would be pretty impactful. It's the president saying, you know, let's jump on this as a priority and here are some ways that I think we should be tackling it. Um, but I'm curious to hear, Suchi, maybe you can get us started. Um, was that executive order a game changer? Are we moving in the right direction? What sort of struck you about it? Uh, I would say the scope of the executive order surprised me a little bit. Um, there's a section in there, section four, that talks about what kind of compute power is scoped in. Um, and it, it was just interesting because I feel like it, feel like it, it de-scopes a lot of existing 
model development or existing models that are in play. Um, although there is some reservation in there that the standards may change later or are likely to change later. Um, so that, that kind of caught me off guard. Otherwise, I thought it was a good start. And I, I say that, and I don't mean it in any kind of judgmental way. I just mean that a lot of the <laughs> executive order has a, hey, we need to have uh, some guardrails within X number of months or X number of days. And so there's a very like, wait and see approach, I think, from an industry perspective of where this is this is going to go. Um, in the meantime, I feel like the lawyers who are who are in the weeds right now are working off of making sure that existing regulations are being applied correctly in this technical space. And uh, we're, we're having more conversations around that, which, which drives typically back to privacy and intellectual property concerns. So. Chloe, as you've been talking about the executive order, what's been your sort of debrief for folks who are looking to you for insights? Yeah, I mean, I think that the breadth of the executive order is something that a lot of people are both, um, you know, sometimes not so much surprised with, but definitely impressed with, right? Um, it's very comprehensive. It engages, I think, at least 15, 10 to 15 different agencies across the federal government um, and ones that you might not think of, like, you know, the VA and the Department of Transportation, Um Types of organizations where you know you, you know, think about them leading in AR, being um, you know prominent in AI, but I think that this you know is a real um, uh, you know testament to um, how much the administration is taking this issue seriously and really wants to lead and um, you know kind of set a, a precedent and also plan a flagpole right in terms of diplomacy. We have a lot of um, developments happening around the world in AI policy generally. And I think it's no, it's no um, surprise or no shock, I guess, that this executive order was released just days before the UK's AI summit, where a lot of the discussion is about, um, you know, model governance and AI safety and which country really is going to lead in, in making AI safer. So the section four that Suchi was mentioning is really sort of focused on controlling very large language models, whether that's these know your customer obligations for cloud service providers, or just general sort of reporting mechanisms for um, organizations that are developing what they're calling uh, dual use foundation models. And again, we need more clarity on what that definition really means. And the Commerce Department will do sort of a rulemaking and um, information gathering exercise to define that. But, um, you know, to the to the point that I think someone else made earlier, maybe, maybe it was Suji about, you know, what was or wasn't in the executive order. I think one of the things that um, some advocates and society have have observed not being in there is the fact that, you know, some of these requirements or reporting obligations uh, only apply to sort of the most the most uh, powerful models, the most capable models. And there's this whole ecosystem of AI that's being implemented right now that poses and creates risks to privacy, to bias and to data, right? Bringing it back to privacy, you know, um, how people can have more control over their data. And I think that, you know, one of the reasons that that may not be in the executive order is because with a lot is because that for a lot of these models, um, particularly these large language models that are trained on, you know, billions of parameters sometimes, um, it's really, really hard to go in and extract data points. It's it's hard to really trace where information is actually coming from because these models um, and, yeah, 
it's like a nebulous web. They have so many different inputs and so many connections. And so um, I think this is something that we'll see some more research in with, um, you know, in and across companies looking at model access, things like red teaming. Um, but I think it's, it's really, really hard right now in the industry or government to, to actually sort of pick apart these models and determine where information is coming from. Chloe, that's such a great flag. I was, I was just thinking that, you know, if you're looking at model development or production from a privacy perspective, it would actually be really helpful to have some of those regulatory actions that had started up uh, around OpenAI come out with like some kind of conclusion or publication or guidance to uh, the general field, because, you know, we keep, as a field of attorneys looking at uh, how you develop models and how much data is involved and, and what kind of processing the data can or can't go through, you're looking at, okay, well, someone needs to be able to exercise their individual rights, whether it's deletion or rectification or something like that. And how do they really do that? And that that remains an open question. Uh, and, and there's a lot of ambiguity there. So you don't have a lot of tools in your toolbox from from the privacy perspective. And maybe that leaves off the table privacy uh, enhancing technologies uh, like differential privacy and things like that. And I'm not an expert in that space or familiar with what PETs really boil down to, but it seems like that would require technical specialists. So what happens to uh, smaller companies that are working in the space or larger companies that don't want to uh, do that kind of like technical specialist hiring or build out that kind of team to, to work on this stuff? Like if the problem is that it's very hard to go into the data sets and find the applicable information, if it, the problem is that it's very hard to remove it, maybe there need to be laws in place that say this is where you're allowed to pull data from or these are the standards you have to have to review data in your training sets. And maybe part of the problem is that these systems have developed so quickly and established norms so quickly in this space and these norms aren't safe, like just in general. And so we, we may need to go back to the drawing board and tell companies, you have to just stop until we can figure out how we rebuild this in an actually privacy way. Well, so I wonder if, if, and Kelly, point taken on training data sets, but I think the question's broader than that, right? So it's, if you have a model, is there personal data within the model? And then things like, if, if a company or a uh, person, whomever has stood up a model or supposed to a model, if if they're working on a model and the output is filtered, then and it doesn't show personal data, then that, does that meet the requirements of uh, any of the regulations around personal data or personally identifiable information? Right. So in that instance, you could have personal data in the training data set and the model, but no one sees it on the outside. Um, so I, I feel like it gets a little more complicated. But doesn't that still violate permissions for use? Well, and that's the whole other question. And I think that I, I really enjoy this conversation because we come back to the, did we have consent for the data from the get-go? And is is it being processed in a way that the individual would expect it to be processed? And from what I've seen from a, a couple of um, different terms that I've looked like looked at online, people have given unintentionally likely, right? Very broad access rights to their personal data. Um, because I don't think any of us, when we signed up for things like social media accounts, anticipated the way data can be used down the road. I certainly didn't. I have pictures on Instagram going back for years. I had no idea. 
Yeah, I'm just, I, I don't use my social anymore, but I haven't deleted them because I haven't downloaded all of my pictures that I want to take with me when I go. I'm talking about, I've been waiting to do that chore for years. And yeah, I just basically pray each night that uh, none of those resurface and anyone who's doing some like recon on me to decide if I should, you know, moderate some panel or something. Um, yeah, I live in fear that my bad Facebook poetry <laughs> is going to come back and haunt me. Does the Biden executive order help me if I'm a privacy person working at a company, or maybe I'm not specifically privacy, but I'm privacy adjacent, or I work with privacy on this stuff. Does that executive order give me some action items to do now? Even if it's just like, I see, I see the direction they're talking about going, these are the meetings I need to start having, like, does it have practical utility at all? It will. Um, so breaking down, like the order's massive. Let's just get that out of the way. It's huge. But breaking down it into categories, uh, there's there's a, a few portions where they're definitely looking for public input. And that includes from companies that are working in this space. So uh, you can definitely take action by saying what your perspective is, what you've seen in practice. Outside of that, there are orders in there for agencies to start immediately developing guidance on how to use AI responsibly. So that will be a useful thing for companies as soon as the guidance actually comes out. Um, there's also steps about like how agencies need to put together experts on AI, how they'll look at enforcement, how they'll look at assisting in the space. So there definitely should be resources for companies that are working with AI but since the the orders just come out, it's going to be, I think, some time before we actually see the results of that. Yeah, one thing that I would say is that, um, and I've, this has been said many times before, but obviously the federal government is a huge purchaser of technology solutions, many of which include AI now, right? And um, in addition to the executive order, uh, one part of one significant component of it that was mentioned, but is also separate is that the Office of Management and Budget, OMB, also released a memo providing guidance to agencies on how it expects them to be using AI. And a big part of that, as Kelly mentioned, is, you know, appointing a chief AI officer, appointing a board to sort of oversee AI use in the agency, um, developing different types of risk management projects. Uh, processes uh, that not only apply to AI being developed within the government, but also to any AI that is being procured. And so if you are working in any kind of company that does any kind of contracting with the federal government, um, thinking about where you're getting your data from, uh, the types of AI use cases that you're developing, what kinds of things you may need to describe to someone who is thinking about buying those um, resources or solutions, particularly from the government, will be really, really important because um, this OMB guidance is going to set sort of a much higher standard or a standard period because currently there are no standards for um, AI procurement or guidelines for sort of AI governance in a, in a federal government procurement context. Um, and and th so these guidelines will sort of help help create that, help fill that gap. So um, I think if you're a privacy professional working in an AI company, and particularly one that sells to the government, um, reading through that guidance and sort of thinking about, you know, if you want to respond, um, what things perk your interest, uh, what things feel relatively salient to you uh, would be a really, really good step. The, the last thing I'll mention, and just really quickly, is that, um, you know, the executive order uh, has, I think, 
a dozen or more. Someone made a list of this. I need to go pull it up. But um, opportunities for the public to give input on either the uses of AI systems or um, how they should be governed. Uh, One of the important ones that will come out, uh, I think, in the next, I don't know, three or four months um, is a request for input from the National Telecommunications and Information Administration, NTIA, an agency in the Department of Commerce, about um, what uh, an open source, about the risks of open source models and using open source models. And I'm sure that Sushi can talk a little bit about this too, but because so much of AI development is happening uh, in an open source context or with open source models, with open source tools, um, it'll be really, really important for developers and um, you know technology players across the ecosystem to make their voices heard through that comment period. So um, I want to flag that one in, in, in particular, but there will be so many opportunities with this executive order for organizations, the public, civil society, um, to to share how how they are how they are experiencing AI tools. And I think that's a really really important part of um, this order and just sort of the public engagement process. I want to come back to something that Suchi said earlier that I I, I should have asked the follow up on, which is, and for people who are like <clears throat> doing this at their organization, uh, this is probably a dumb question, but. When you say, Suchi, that it can be hard to even understand at your organization, if I understood you correctly, where all the inputs are coming from, can you tell me more about that? Or did I misstate yeah, what not, you said? Yeah, not quite where I was going with that, right? Because you should be able to get a pretty solid understanding from, if you're internal at a company, like it, it is your responsibility as as the attorney to make sure you understand what is going into a model that's being used or developed. And and that shouldn't be a muddy area. But I think from a public perspective, this ties back into how there was really like a, a broad level of, I don't know, permissiveness around companies in the early tech days and how they'd set up their policies in terms of use and stuff, where we as users don't have as much insight into where our data is going to go or has gone since since the inception of whatever the original tech service is. That, I think that's where more of where I was going because it, it shouldn't be difficult internally to get the answers from your stakeholders on on what they want to do to build a model and stuff. Okay. Um, one thing that Biden called for in his EO was a federal privacy law. Um, I think we all understand that that is a struggle. We've been riding that struggle bus for a while. Um, Do you think the right move is in the end that we pass a federal privacy law and we wrap some of this AI stuff into it? Or do you think that like the EU is pursuing with its uh, AI bill that we need to carve out something that's very specific to AI? Open question. I think the privacy issue has to come first. And part of that is passing a federal law that just establishes baseline privacy rights for people. You know, right now in the U.S., depending on what state you live in, you have entirely different sets of rights over your information. So I think what we first need to do is just pass a law that has those baseline protections in it. And while that should address some of the issues that come up in AI, I I think if we try to wrap AI into a federal privacy law, we're going to run into the problem of there's always going to be a new technology. So I think keeping privacy as a law, as a federal law, distinct from addressing specific tech 
enables us to have that baseline, get that passed eventually. God, I just want that to get passed eventually. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And then from there, we can kind of do more of a model where as new technology comes up, we can have additional laws or we can have addenda that address the tech specifically if there are gaps in coverage. What are your thoughts, guys, on uh, ladies, on the approach the EU is taking to regulating AI? Is there, like, should the U.S. follow that lead? Are there places where we see shortcomings there where we need to diverge? I'll just say that, you know, in the U.S., we have just sort of a fundamentally different regulatory system and approach regimes, um, and one that relies really heavily, particularly in the digital context on sectors and industries and norms and standards in those sectors and industries to set rules, right? So there's been a lot of talk about, you know, setting up a new agency in the U.S. and naming like an AI czar who would make new rules and create new enforcement authorities um, for itself to enforce AI harms. And um, you know, first of all, uh, as we've seen with federal privacy, setting up a new, passing any law and digital issues is seemingly impossible for Congress and setting up a new regulatory agency via congressional action would not only take, I think, a really long time, um, but also the implementation of that could take a decade, right? The technology just moves too quickly for that sort of thing. And so I think what, you know, Congress really needs to be thinking about is where and how they can expand authorities for existing enforcement agencies um, to prosecute and enforce AI harms in context, right? Um, I don't know about you, but I don't want like an AI czar um, making, thinking about how the law applies in like like housing discrimination situation. Um, And maybe I'll come up with a better example, but like, I think the reality is, and that we have, we have to sort of accept is that, um, you know, we have existing regulatory frameworks to think about harm and risk and, you know, the law in this country. And um, it's very, very different, I think, sort of than the approach that has been taken in the EU. But um, there's been a lot of really, really important activity that actually has been happening at some of the enforcement agencies in the U.S., at the DOJ, at the FTC, um, the EEOC, the, the CFPB. All of these agencies have been doing their own kinds of work and thinking about how um, their existing authorities apply in AI contexts. And the Biden administration takes that a, a bit of a step further by saying, you know, hey, DOJ, you coordinate this work. Um, I'm now, I am now directing you to focus on, you know, taking this very seriously and figuring out what some of these enforcements might look like and where the law may not apply, where we need to make new rules. Um, and I think that really is sort of the way to go. Um, a broad sort of based horizontal AI law um, I think would be, you know, while I think it's important to sort of think about the ways in which AI can apply in different contexts, and yes, it's a very malleable technology, um, I think we really need to rely on sort of where um, existing norms and, and laws and standards um, can apply and, and how we can evolve those to sort of meet this moment and future moments too, uh, which again, uh, relying on the expertise of of people and different agencies, uh, given their past enforcement history, would be really, really important. So I'm just curious on one thing that you said, Chloe, because I was also reading that uh, Kamala Harris has uh, introduced the idea of a safety institute that would live under NIST uh, that mm-hmm. would focus on AI. Um, 
And I know you said, you know, you're not really sure that we need a czar. A, a czar. A czar. <laughs> I'm getting real literal here with my pronunciation. Um, but one thing I thought of when I saw that is, you know, what you guys were discussing about this idea behind sort of definitions. Uh, and I wonder if some sort of unifying body, although you mentioned that Biden has asked the DOJ to take charge on this, I wonder if something like that would help with some of the problems that we're discussing, or you think it's sort of a nothing yeah. burger? So just a point of clarification, the Biden executive order, uh, tasked the DOJ with coordinating new enforcement, um, investigations and just activities, like getting the enforcement agencies together and sort of understanding where there may be gaps in enforcement and um, in discrimination, civil rights cases or, or instances where either agencies or, you know, industry may be using AI in ways that are violating civil rights. Um, and they need to sort of do some more research on understanding what, what those really are, defining those. Um, I th- uh, and yes, uh, Vice President Harris has, um, you know, tasked NIST with setting up uh, an AI safety institute um, that will live in the Department of Commerce. But um, I think I want to also make the clarification that, as I understand that this AI safety institute will be very focused on, you know, developing technical standards, creating a test bed for these very large AI models, large language models to come, um, and, and sort of providing more of a platform where governments, industry, civil society can kind of come together and and develop best practices, benchmarks, like I said, a test bed um, for evaluating these very powerful language models, which is different, right, than enforcing, um, you know, harms created by AI that are well documented or, um, you know, create liabilities under U.S. law. So, um, you know, I think NIST is, is the right home for this kind of AI safety institute. Um, and Elham Tabasi, the um, sort of really the champion of a lot of this activity at NIST is the right person to to lead that. And I believe that that is her new role. Um, I am very comfortable with Elham as the AI czar. Uh, but to be clear, the AI czar, I think we do not need is like, you know, uh, someone who is put in this position after waiting for Congress to decide that we're going to set up a new regulatory agency, you know, taking five to 10 years to actually do that. And then we have a czar who is then tasked with like figuring out where to start as, you know, now we're 10 years down the road and the technology has totally evolved and maybe we're all just like wearing VR glasses. <laughs> so um, <laughs> sort of different things, but back to the point about definitions, um, hopefully those clarifications make sense. I'm wondering, uh, Callie, maybe we can hear from you on this one. You know, we talked about the need for some type of federal privacy law. And Suchi mentioned that, you know, when a lot of us signed up for, for example, social media, we didn't really understand, like, all of the data uses that we were going to be exposed to. Um in any new law, considering AI's widespread use and its training on um, other websites' data, really, do we need to switch it up from this, like, n- you know, burden uh, that we put on consumers that we always talk about with, like, notice and consent? Like, you know, do you really have meaningful choice if you can't even imagine all of the uses that uh, you may later be exposed to with your data? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so the current way that the U.S. uh, basically allows companies to claim consent is it's not real consent because in many cases, it's just the company is saying, well, they used the website and the privacy policy was there and the privacy policy said we would take information for X, Y, Z things. So clearly they agreed. 
that's not what consent means. That's not what notification is. That's definitely not opt-in consent. So our whole structure of consent needs to be reevaluated just separately from the AI conversation. But on top of that, I think we've set up a structure where so much of the burden is on consumers to constantly educate themselves about what the new technology is, what's being developed, what's being used, what's being taken from them when it comes to data. And that's just completely unfair. My full-time job is privacy and following these tech things. And I have no idea well over half the stuff that's going on there. And that's, that's what I do for work. <laughs> it's just the volume is totally untenable. For people that have lives to live, there's no way that they can be meaningfully um, held responsible for understanding the new technology, hunting down how to exercise whatever rights they may have, or negotiating with these giant companies. So I think we need to really examine our structure and look at putting the burden on the companies that are using this data and benefiting from it. So in the AI context, that would mean that companies that are developing AI and that are selling these these models and these systems, they need to be the ones that are proactively responsible for like making sure they have a legal basis to use whatever data they're using and making sure that there are protections built into their systems and making sure that there's clear, easy ways for people to exercise rights and making sure they have those rights. Like I think shifting the burden to the companies that are making the money and benefiting from these things makes so much more sense than constantly pretending consumers understand and are able to meaningfully exercise rights in in this space. Speaking of um, protecting oneself, from the company perspective, uh, Suchi, maybe I can ask you about this. You remember the uh, Q LinkedIn case? Was, was that the web scraping case? From my understanding, that case was like LinkedIn said to Haiku, hey, you trained your uh, your model on our data. You're not allowed to do that. And in the end, after some battles, uh, sort of came away with a win on that. Um, I, I guess what I'm wondering is like, how if I'm a company, how do I protect myself from um, from what steps do I take uh, in terms of making sure that anything that shouldn't be scraped by an AI model is That's actually a great question. Um, I know that OpenAI had recently put out something that websites could add uh, some kind of like HTML tag or something that had like a do not scrape signal. Um, I, I know that there are things like that. There's also... Probably having a login on your page is probably something that's uh, helpful to protect the data that you have on your websites. Um, there's been a lot of discussion around watermarking content as well, if you're looking at images and things like that. And and actually, this kind of goes back.